This afternoon, congregation of the Lord, I may proclaim to you God's word as we read it from Matthew and Luke, as well as the Eighth Commandment itself in Exodus 20, you shall not steal. And what the church has come to summarize and confess concerning this eighth word of the law in Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find that on page 557 of your book of praise. There the church confesses, what does God forbid in the eighth commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together Psalm 49, stances 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, money matters. That's the topic before us this afternoon. In both senses of the expression, money matters. That's to say we concern ourselves with the subject of money and also its significance. Money is a big deal, especially in a world that has gone mad for money. Our Savior already observed in his time that money is a big deal, something that also the believer would struggle with. He knew that the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is one we would run up against time and again. Therefore, money was one of Christ's favorite teaching points. He talked about money, possessions, all the time. In fact, he talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Of the 39 parables recorded in the Gospels, 11 of them talk about money. It's as if he didn't care for much else than drachmas, denarii, and what belonged to Caesar. Now this afternoon, congregation, we need to get to the heart of God's instruction in the Eighth Commandment, specifically as it pertains to our money. And what you find is that the biblical discussion of money divides itself into really two main categories danger of money, and the blessing of money. It's either a doorway to bad things or a tool in the hands of a gracious God. The battle between the two sides of the coin wages in your heart. Money is a danger. Money is a blessing. 
Christ spoke about money as often as he did because he knows that this is not in the first place a battle about the size of your paycheck. No, he knew this battle is very much a heart battle. You and I live out of our hearts and our hearts will only rest secure when we are being governed by God and are therefore governing the things that he gives to us in his grace. So I proclaim to you God's word this afternoon under the following theme. God teaches you to use your money instead of letting your money abuse you. We'll consider two things. First, the danger of your money. And secondly, the blessing of your money. Like our topic of last week, sexuality, so it is with money. Scripture leaves us with absolutely no room for neutrality when it comes to our daily use of our money. You are using your funds in the worship of yourself, or you're using your money in the worship of God. Well, as we know, we read this afternoon, our Lord Jesus has some very pointed teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 is what we read together. There he makes clear, among other things, that we are, each and every one, treasure seekers. There are treasures we have, and there are treasures we're trying to get. We often think that if we are able to possess what we have come to treasure, then we will be satisfied and happy and experience inner peace. Our lives are often characterized as, if only I had fill in the blank. Whatever it might be that you are living for is your treasure. No matter what, no matter whom you profess to believe and serve, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. The Lord Jesus goes on, though, to speak about your eyes. That might seem a little unexpected, rather out of place, but it's not. Each of us has two sets of vision, and our physical eyes are not the more important of the two. Each of us has another set of eyes, the eyes of the heart. That's your most important set of eyes, and it's what Jesus is referring to. You could be physically blind and yet live well. But if the eyes of your heart are not working well, you won't live the way you were created to. That's what Jesus is saying. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. For the eyes of your heart are always, always fixed on some hope, some thing, some dream. Whatever that heart fixation might be, it's going to determine then what your physical eyes look for. The treasures of your heart will always shape what you look for. Then, the Lord Jesus comes with some of the most profound thoughts. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. 
Christ is picturing money as a God. And so he is here alerting us to just how high the stakes really are in this matter of treasures. He's revealing why each of us needs to look at himself in the mirror of Christ's words. No one's heart will live free. You will surrender your heart to some master. And what masters your heart is going to shape your goals, choices, words, actions, emotions. So it's clear then that there really are few conversations more essential to the one than the one Jesus is having here. He is talking about a spiritual battle that is being waged on the battlefield of your heart. It's a battle between two lords, Lord Christ and Lord Money. Each of these lords offers you hope, life, peace. Each of these lords will tell you what's important to focus on. And the truth of the matter is that your heart simply isn't able to love them both. If you love the one, you will hate the other, and if you serve the one, you will ignore the other. And that really is a very serious matter. Have you ever wondered why, brothers and sisters, of all the false lords that Jesus could have warned you about, he chose money? Could it be, perhaps, that this is the Lord whose seductions are the hardest for us to escape Could it be that for you and me who are hardwired to pursue treasure, the treasure character of money makes it extremely hard to resist? The issue that Christ drops in front of your eyes here is either you are investing in the success of your own kingdom or you are giving yourself in the service of God's kingdom. Either you are worshiping Lord Christ and giving yourself to what he says is important or you are worshiping Lord money and pursuing his comfort, pleasure, power. He's very clear. You can't serve both. You can't come to church on Sunday and try and switch lords if the Lord you have come to worship here is the Lord you've not being worshipping all week. If you work more than you need to acquire more wealth, if your peace is found in what's in your bank account or in your job security, if you get more excitement, as it were, from shopping online or in the store than you do in coming together here and worshipping with God's people, you are worshipping Lord Money. And you are letting your money abuse you because you're never going to have enough. The words of the Lord Jesus then call his hearers then and us today to examine our hearts. Just where is your treasure? Where is your allegiance? Where's your drive? Yes, where's your worship? God or mammon? 
the passage we read together from Luke 12 impresses upon us further our inescapable conflict between Lord Christ and Lord Money. It addresses the power of money to tempt, deceive, seduce, and ultimately control you. It's the parable of the rich fool. Jesus is here speaking in Luke 12 to an innumerable multitude of people. From that multitude, a man pushes his way forward and says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to give half of the inheritance to me. That's a request with which we're somewhat sympathetic. This man wants his piece of the family financial pie. It sounds as if the father of the family has passed away and he's left his inheritance to his two sons. That inheritance was a unit, probably a plot of land. This man, however, wanted a division of the inheritance. He wanted a share for himself. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to us. We want the same thing. Jesus replies in verse 14, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Man, my task is not to settle personal, familial disputes. That's for the authorities. At the same time, our Savior seizes the moment to teach something to all those present. And so in verse 15, he turns to the multitude and he says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. He wants to impress upon the crowd that there are more things to life than money or inheritance or possessions. Your life is much more than the net value of your material stuff. To illustrate his point, Jesus goes on to tell this parable. It centers around this well-to-do man who had a very plentiful crop. He's been blessed by God with far more than he knows what to do with. What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He's got his options, one of which is to share the abundance he's received He doesn't have to hoard it all to himself. Well, he comes with his solution. I'm going to do this. I will pull down barns, my barns, and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. The man thinks he's all set. Got it made in the shade. I'll put my stuff in my bank. Let it accrue interest. I can live my days in total leisure for as long as tomorrow will come. We understand this man's attitude and perspective is entirely self-indulgent. He's responsible only for himself. How does Jesus respond? He explains that this plan is utter foolishness. 
It's short-sighted and it's earthly-minded. It doesn't at all take God into account. It doesn't realize that this man is on borrowed time. Indeed, God says to this man, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Tonight you're going to have to report to your creator and judge. You'll have to give an account of your soul. And then your money, your grain, your goods. What use are these going to be to you? You can't take it with you. And you don't even have someone to pass it off to. Well, that man from the crowd who pleaded with Jesus should have understood all this. He should have realized that no one can take their money with them when they die. His own father certainly didn't take his money, hence this very family dispute. Via the parable, Jesus confronts this man with the futility of chasing after earthly inheritance. Accumulating riches for oneself doesn't protect you and you can't present it to God in order to be admitted into heaven. And so the Lord adds in verse 21, so is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. He's taking his audience here to task. Money is not the issue. What you do with it is. You need to be rich toward God. You can't worship Lord Christ and Lord money. It's clear from the parable, brothers and sisters, that money is very much a danger. It can push you into a self-centered way of living that acts as if nothing more is important than your needs and wants. Money can cause you to forget God and his glory. You can misuse money because at those points you don't really care what God says. You want what you want. The eighth commandment tells us that money, possessions, they matter. They alert us to one of the most significant issues in our heart, greed, the selfishness of sin, the desire for me to pull the strings. We need to see this for ourselves and also perhaps in ourselves. For consider how differently God speaks of money. God is the creator and the owner of everything that exists. Psalm 24, we just sang it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12. Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. You and I are creatures, not the creator, so we may not relate to the things in our wallets as if we are the owners. Instead, human beings were designed to manage God's property. He instructed Adam and Eve to take care of the garden. Adam and Eve didn't own it. 
They don't get a vote when it comes to God's purposes for their lives and everything that he's made. So when they took of the fruit that God commanded them not to, they stole. And the result was broken peace, broken fulfillment, broken happiness. So when you are about to buy whatever it is you may want, but probably don't need. Is there awareness in you that your money belongs to the Lord? Or are you ruled by your money? Are your physical eyes looking at something that has already smitten the eyes of your heart? Money is far much more than just how much dough you got in your wallets and bank account. It's much more than hitting the buy button on your mobile phone or your tablet or your desktop. Our thoughts about money and our use of money are always an expression of the deepest treasures of your heart. Our money world is a spiritual world. A world shaped by the worship of God or mammon. And what the Bible teaches you is that you are to invest in what you've been given in a way that glorifies the one who has entrusted it to you. And that takes us to our second point where we consider the blessing of money. The Lord Jesus concluded his parable in Luke 12 by saying, so is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. We need to be clear, brothers and sisters, on what Jesus is saying about money and possessions. You're not going to find on the lips of the Lord or anywhere else in Scripture the indication that it is evil to acquire wealth, to spend money. The Bible never teaches that all rich people are unspiritual and all poor people are godly. Christians may acquire wealth. Abraham became very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. Genesis 13 verse 2. He had 318 trained servants. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man and was a follower of the Lord Jesus. Wealth isn't the issue. Neither take note is storing up things for ourselves the issue. The issue is storing up things for ourselves and at the exact same time being stingy, miserly, not rich toward God. The Apostle James wrote in his letter, chapter 1, verse 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In the midst of this individualistic and highly materialistic culture, our thoughts need to go to that staggering truth. Even a moment's consideration of your daily experience will verify, it's going to confirm what James is saying. If you have sufficient needs, sufficient funds to meet your daily needs, 
You can't claim that you yourself have controlled all the circumstances, variables, and relationships necessary to make that possible. Yes, you may have a job, and you may work hard every day and thank the Lord for that. But the gifts needed to do your work, where do they come from? The economic conditions needed for your job to be available, how do they come into being? The decision of your employer to hire you, who is in control of that? No, not you. <clears throat> it was your God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. With biblical intelligence, we understand that every good thing in our lives is the result of the goodness of God. He grants us everything we could not have earned or accomplished. Your money is meant to point you to the goodness and the faithfulness of your God. Further, scripture teaches us that our money is supposed to point us to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> the apostle Paul says, you are not your own, you are bought at a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus Christ which he poured out on the cross. And so the Apostle Paul can write later to the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Now to be sure, Paul is referring here chiefly to the rich blessings we have inherited through Christ's death and resurrection. <clears throat> blessings of being reconciled to God, forgiven by God, declared righteous by God, and united to Christ. At the same time, we do receive material blessings as well from God. Gifts that remind us of the gospel of our God. Blessings then by which we are to be rich toward God. Well, after speaking about being rich toward God in Luke 12, Jesus adds the following instruction. He says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. He says that God feeds the ravens, though they don't store up food. God also clothes the grass of the field by feeding them, though they are here today and gone tomorrow. He teaches that we ought not to find our peace, our security, by chasing after the necessities of this life, for God will look after those. He knows better than we what we stand in need of. You see, what Christ is doing here in Luke 12 is he is intensely applying the parable of the rich fool. There he had said in verse 15b, one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he says in verse 23, life is more than food, the body is more than clothing. And then he says a very similar thing again in verse 29. Do not seek 
what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Life's not about clothing, food, drink, house, money. That's what the pagans, money worshippers, run after. That's what Jesus says in verse 30. They put in the long hours at work. They worry about the stock market. They fret about what tomorrow will bring. Jesus says, "Uh, that's not for you. Seek his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, the existence of money in your wallet helps you to see how you're doing in this respect. Money's a good indicator as to what's in your heart. So let me ask, when you have money in your wallet, do you get more delight using it for your own purposes or to offer it to God for his purposes and the work of his kingdom? Do you tend to spend more than you should while telling yourself that you would give more if you could? Are you glad to give even when you don't have much? Money exposes to us what's really important to us. It exposes that we do have a tough time regarding as important what God says is important. Brothers and sisters, if you are in humility willing to look hard enough, your use of money will help you see what is battling for the lordship of your heart. And to the degree that it may show you that you may not be rich toward God by seeking first his kingdom, you will have to repent and put your trust in the Lord Christ. And you may show that you put your trust in the Lord by then how you treat your neighbor. As we confess in answer 111, In the Eighth Commandment, God requires that I promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. That is in many ways an echo of the last verses of our reading in Luke 12. Verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money, bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Money provides a great means to bless others. And in our global village, we're well aware of needy people. How we regard our money is directly related to how we regard others. Either we want our money to stop with us because we want our life better, more convenient, and pleasurable, or we regard ourselves as a channel and are excited that the money we have been given can benefit the lives of others. Either our money pays the bills for the kingdom of the self, or it's a tool for participating in the kingdom of God. The truth is, God has provided for us in order that we would be a means of his provision for others. Ephesians 4 verse 28, for example, 
He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Brothers and sisters, we've seen this afternoon how money can be a danger as well as a blessing. We've seen that money matters, but money doesn't save. Money cannot save us from money. It can't save us from the greed that's still there in our heart. For that, you and I have only to look to one thing, the grace of God. God is well aware of how greedy we can be, of how we can let ourselves be abused by our possessions. It's because of our greed shown already in the garden that he sent his son to the cross. He saw to it that his son died in the place of sinners, specifically in the place of thieves. The Bible tells us that when Christ was crucified, two robbers, two thieves were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. That fulfilled the prophecy that the Savior would be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. In his crucifixion, you might say that Christ was considered a greedy thief. That's a great comfort to the believer who breaks the eighth commandment. When Christ died, He died among and for thieves so that every thief who trusts in him will be saved. Isn't that what he said on the cross? He turned to that repentant thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so brothers and sisters, we have one who now sits in heaven on our behalf pleading before God for our salvation. He knows how easily we are seduced into thinking that something in creation will satisfy my heart. He knows I can say that I believe in God and yet live as if he really doesn't exist. Therefore, he has blessed you and me with his grace for today. Yes, it's a grace that forgives, praise the Lord. But it does even more than that. It provides everything you and I need to live in a mammon-serving world in the way you and I were supposed to live. God himself comes and he lives inside us so that when we meet temptation, we will have what we need to fight the battle. Money matters, but God's grace matters even more. It alone gives you both the strength and the freedom to enjoy the blessings of money until the dangers of money are no more. Amen.